pastor, author, and uh, speaker, Graham Cook, makes very clearly kind of what I want to speak about this morning, and that is that Jesus is brilliant. And you, because if you've opened your heart to Jesus, if you want to follow him and allow his life to live through you, you have the brilliance, the mind of Christ available to you. Jesus was brilliant. If you, if you take a study and look closely at the life of Christ in this specifically last week of his life, and you examine all the forces coming from different directions, politically, religious forces, all the things he had to deal with intellectually, emotionally, all the choices he had to make, he walked this walk right down the middle of so many things where he could have easily fallen from one side to the other and not fulfill the very mission for which he came, which was to die on a cross. Jesus is brilliant. And his brilliance is available to you. What I find is interesting as we go through this, this passage of Scripture, and I want to kind of rehearse again for us this walk to the cross. We've been talking about these last Days of the life of Jesus, and it was Passover, it was filled, the city was crowded, people were streaming in, both Jews and, and, and Gentiles who were God-fearers were coming to this city, this great festival that would happen once a year, and it was just jam-packed. And Jesus himself with his disciples was making his way there. You can read it through all the different Gospels as we read through um, Matthew. He comes through Jericho. He comes to a city just outside of Jerusalem. And there he stays. And he comes at just the time where he had missed the passing and the death of a very good friend of his, Lazarus. And he stands outside that tomb the Friday before Good Friday. And he calls him forth like he's waking someone from sleep. And the town now is abuzz with the reality that this Messiah miracle worker person has come. That's Friday. Saturday is the Sabbath day. Sunday is what I've called presentation day. It was the very day that they would bring on that, that, that day in the Jewish calendar, that, that first day of the week, they'd bring now at Passover their lambs. And Jesus himself was intending and did go to the temple to present himself the Lamb of God. To the priests. And he comes into the temple and he sees as he walks through the outer court, which was meant for the Gentile God fearers and for those who are broken and lame and crippled and blind, who could only come into this place, those Jewish people. It was filled with a marketplace and people selling things, and his heart was broken. Because those who, who had it somehow were able to get into that inner court and were, were okay with God and blessed with God weren't allowing their lives to be a blessing to those lives. And he was just, I think, broken in his heart and angry in his spirit. And he left that day and he came back that next day on a Monday, purification day. And on his way in, he, he cursed a fig tree. And you have to understand, there's a time in, 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 in life, there's a time sometimes when you're dealing with people that the only thing that really matters now is not words, but actions. And so he goes to the triumphal entry, which is a parabolic expression, a dramatic action. And so is the cursing of the fig tree is a dramatic action. And then he comes to the temple, which is a dramatic action, and he cleanses it all out. And then we come to this Tuesday, which is this prove yourself day. And he comes back and, and, and the religious leaders and the political 
people are kind of saying, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to do that? By whose authority do you do this? And he begins to teach and he shares three parables that just stuns them. Each reveals their own heart and their, their, their continual obstinacy to his presence. And he reveals that as he does so the gravity of the refusal to acknowledge him as God's anointed. And these leaders are outraged. They're embarrassed because he actually shows their hearts to be insincere. And he, he allows for them to begin to experience fear because they're losing their personal power in the presence of the reality of this truth and love. And the political tensions are just high. And so they leave this teaching where they're upset and they've just been made to look really rather foolish again. And they regroup. And they begin to think about what they can do in order to trap him in his words. They're going to come against the brilliance of Jesus. What I want you to think about today is that you have been given the brilliance of God through Jesus Christ. And no matter who may come to trap you, no matter who and what situation in your life may come to trip you up, when you come to those places, you begin to experience fear and your mind begins to be overwhelmed with worry. And then you anxiously strategize how you're going to get through this one. I just want to give you some simple lessons that I think by watching the life of Christ, as you look at this passage, you see how he responds. And if you look at these verses, you'll see. What do you do when you feel trapped? You're tripped up. You're backed into a corner. You're in a situation, whether it be financial, whether it be in some way uh, a relational thing, or whether it be in, in some area of your life where you are maybe at work in a box. And he gives, if you look at his life, you see one. I'm just going to encourage you to be calm. Verses 15 through the first part of 16, you have the mind of Christ. And then be honest. Verse 16, that second part, there is incredible power in just a simple, honest life that is truthful. And the third thing is this, as you look at 17 through 22, be confident. That as you move into this place and you've moved into this place of calmness and you're honest with what's going on, you walk into this, the mind of Christ, the brilliance of Christ will bring to you as you are in that situation, incredible opportunities and ways to move if you're open and surrendered to his spirit. Now, also want to mention to you that this, as I poured through this message, I have a whole number of sheets as well that could be a whole other message, which I think I will do at some later point. Which is the answer to this question, how do we live in a highly politicized world? Because that's what they're asking. And Jesus gives us an unbelievably wise response. That has a way of unhooking the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And and we'll talk about that at some later point. But today, let's read Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. And it begins where it says the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him and they have to note this along with the Herodians. It's important that you kind of underline or note that along with the Herodians. That's an important thing because when Jesus saw them coming, he marked that in his mind. Rabbi or teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. 
Palestine. You need a little bit of Palestine. What is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? This imperial tax was a special tax that was levied on subject peoples and not on Roman citizens. So the Jews as a subject people would be paying this tax and they were not happy about it. So verse 18, Jesus, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin you use for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription is on this coin? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what's his Caesar's. And to God, what is God's? And when they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and they went away. Let's pray. Father, take these moments that we have. And Spirit of God, I pray that you would begin to show us and, 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 and teach us how we are to respond in these situations where we might be moved to fear and be overcome with worry and, and, and then begin to anxiously try and figure out how we're going to make something happen in our own strength. It's such a human thing to do. Jesus, thank you so much for showing us the way, modeling for us how the Spirit can live in us and, and change us and transform us in every in any situation. God, I believe there are hearts here today that are, that are at that place. And, and I ask that you would release your spirit to bring revelation and understanding to their particular situation. In Christ's name, amen. So what do you do when you feel trapped? You're tripped up, you're backed into a corner. How do, you, how do you respond? How do you handle those situations when even though you may have done nothing wrong, you just don't see a good ending to it? You've been in those kind of places? What do you do when you feel that uh, fear in the pit of your stomach? What I find is interesting that Jesus reveals as he depends on the Holy Spirit, which you need to realize, because sometimes people go, well, he was fully God, but he was also fully human, which means that as a fully man, he was fully dependent on the Holy Spirit so that he would be in touch with the Father's mind so that he could have the brilliance of God. He gave up that brilliance and all that stuff when he became a man. He gave up all these kind of attributes. And he, like us, is in a place where he depends on the Holy Spirit. He, he taught us how to live this way. And he invites you to move into that. So first, be calm. Here's what you need to know. You have the mind of Christ. You are brilliant. Not in yourself. But in who you are attached to. If you have opened your heart to God and you say, I want to follow the way of Jesus, I want to know his word and his truth, and you begin to allow your spirit to hear his spirit, you have his mind. So be calm. If you look at verse 15 and 16, you see then the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap him in his words. And they sent the disciples to him along with the Herodians. And this is just the setup here in these first few sentences are the scene. And Jesus is aware that he sees the Herodians coming, that they were up to something. The Pharisees and Herodians, they represented two different political parties. They just didn't spend time together in any way, in any shape or any form. You might see the Pharisees and Sadducees together, but in, in possibly the Pharisees and Zealots, but not the Herodians. The Herodians are on the very liberal side of the equation, and the Pharisees were on that more conservative side. Not the arch-conservatives, but fairly conservative. 
And they came with the purpose of taking Jesus to task, to get him to to trip up. And they gave a question. You can tell they're trying to trip him up because they gave him a yes, no question. They really were going to give him this question because they realized that if he would say yes to one, he would alienate a certain political party. And if he said no to one, he would alienate the other. And his whole purpose, their whole purpose, as they saw this messianic balloon beginning to rise with people's expectations and excitement about the fact that there could be a Messiah and they saw their political power going down, if they could, through this question, poke a hole in this rising balloon, they would let out the steam by creating division among the people. And so that's the situation that's going on. And at several points throughout Jesus's ministry, opponents tried to entrap him in in what I call one of the hottest topics of that day. It was political. The issue of paying taxes, no different than today, right? And they desperately wanted to see this crowd divided. This was their hope. So they intentionally met and devised a plan to trap Jesus. Now, I think on the one hand, when I would look at this and you can imagine they're in the back room and they're, they're meeting with this other group. They're not really good friends, but they're not really common friends because they have a common enemy. They're behind closed doors and these political enemies bound by a common enemy, Jesus and Jesus, who has no political interest group. They are bringing together the brightest and the best. And you kind of go, it's really pretty clever. They're pretty bright. They're really pretty wise. They spent some time. This is a really good question. This is a great setup. Just imagine the life of Jesus, all the stuff going on in his life and the fact that he knows that his life will be soon given on a cross and he has all this stuff going on. He would be very easily in a very anxious place that and it came to him when this he could have reacted to the trap. But at the same time, what I think is really interesting is how foolish they are. Think about it. They're in the back and they're scheming. They're trying to trip up God's holy anointed one who is surrendered to the spirit throughout his life, continues to be surrendered to the spirit. Somehow they're meeting back. They're going, how are we going to what's what's pulling over on God? Now, I want you to think about it for a second. When you are in your own life and you're in that place, you move to fear, you move to worry and you're in a situation and maybe you're in that situation where you feel like you have the mind, the brilliance of God. He's he's here for you. And one of the ways you get in touch with that, one of the ways you begin to experience that is through this non-anxious, calm presence where you where you get alone. And, and one of the reasons you have regular times alone with God, one of the reasons you need solitude, one of the reasons you need space in your life. It's so easy to skim through life because we can move through it with all kinds of activity. And we live on such a superficial plane that we don't hear the brilliance of God through his Holy Spirit. So he says, I want you just to quiet your heart. Do you have calm? It's a choice. It's a choice to say, I'm going to take some time. I'm going to spend some time. Because when Jesus would do that, it says that it was his habit. When he would do that, he would allow the word of God and, and he would allow for his heart to begin to kind of let that anxious stuff get out there. And he would kind of put it out there, whether you do it on paper or as you go on a walk. I don't know how you connect to God. But as you take that time, he allows for your heart to get calm. And when you get in that calm place, God can speak and you can know the mind of Christ and you can become brilliant by his presence. 
You don't need to worry. You don't need to move to fear. You don't need to fret. You don't. You actually can resist the urge to become anxious and quiet your heart. You can breathe in peace. You can relax in his presence. And I want to tell you, you know, as animated as I get up here, is as anxious as I can get. You can ask my wife. I'm learning a lot of this as you and I learn together. What it means to, to just calm your heart. And like David would so often do in the Psalms, I love what David would do. He would kind of step out of his soul and in his spirit with God's spirit. He'd go, what's, what's the big deal, oh my soul? You ever read that? Oh my soul, why are you so downcast? He kind of would become objective in his spirit and the spirit of God. And they would kind of look at him and go, what's going on with your soul, David? I, I mean, it's just all afraid. That's what that presence is. He says, don't be anxious about anything but everything. With prayer and petitions and thanksgiving, present those requests, the concerns that you have and bring them to God. And if you choose to do that and leave them at God's feet, you then choose this sense of calm and this quiet, this non-anxious presence. And as you do that, the Spirit of God begins to speak to you. In that choice, He begins to give you the, the overwhelming, transforming peace that what passes all understanding. The Holy Spirit is a gift to all of us. The Holy Spirit is our advocate, our counselor, our friend. He is our God. I had a professor in uh, seminary who was a brilliant guy. His name was William Lane Craig. And um, he was a, his, his forte was philosophy. And so in seminary, you know, they only have basic, some basic philosophy courses. And he really went on and has gone on to a number of places where he has done incredible things as a philosopher. He was brilliant. Probably one of the most brilliant guys I know. But what amazed me when I was at Trinity and I was having these courses was as brilliant as he was, which we all knew as students, he was convinced and he would tell us this, that no, listen to this, no one is as brilliant as the man or woman who simply depends on the Spirit of God. That's amazing. You may think you're a little slow, you really don't. No one is as brilliant as the man or woman who simply depends on the Spirit of God because you have the mind of Christ and God's brilliance is available to you in every situation. And so in order to reinforce this in our lives, he required us as students. He said, I, you know what, I don't care if you get all this philosophy stuff. It'll be helpful. It'll be good for you. In fact, you only pass if you can actually answer those questions. But if you come through here and you didn't pass and you got one thing, it's this is what I want you to get. He said, I want every student here. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to memorize Corinthians chapter one, verse 18 through Corinthians chapter two, because in that it talks about the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. It talks about in that chapter and it describes the wisdom of the wise as being nothing compared to the wisdom of God. Listen to what this passage says. Those of you who have the Spirit of God, who are willing to be calm and hear the Spirit of God, it says this, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Okay, so your spirit has the ability to understand in what's going in your mind. The spirit of God has the ability to understand what's going on in the mind of God. Somehow you bring these two together. That's a good thing. And he goes on, he says, what we have received, if we are ones who follow Christ, understand our need for him, is not the spirit of the world, this whole wise spirit, which may be brilliant in some ways, but the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. 
And this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spiritual taught words. And the person without the spirit, the one who chooses to live without the spirit, you can choose to walk through life. And and even though, you know, Christ as your Lord and Savior, not allow the spirit to come in to 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 live filled with his spirit. And part of living filled with the spirit is getting that place where you quiet down. You say, you know, I don't want to be controlled by mine. And he says this, he says in his word here. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and and can't understand because they are discerned only through the spirit. And the person with the spirit makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments for who has known the mind of the Lord as to instruct him. Listen to this. But we have the mind of Christ. And William Lane Craig would look at these seminary students and say, you can go out with all kinds of intellectual understanding, theological understanding, philosophical understanding, but you need to know what you're giving to people is not that. You're giving them the Holy Spirit. And when you come before them, you need to let them know that no one is as brilliant as the person who is simply dependent on the Spirit of God. So what are you worried about? What's 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 causing fear in your life? Be calm. Be honest. There is power in simple truth. One of the great things about the life of Christ, you look at the life of Christ, he was constantly honest. He was a person who lived with incredible integrity. And there is nothing as powerful in life as a person of integrity. The life lived honestly and straightforward. The life lived without scheming to get what you think you need. The life that chooses not to secretly manipulate behind the scenes to get what you think you need. The life that says, I won't try and make this happen in my strength and wisdom, not that you haven't been given strength and wisdom, but when you combine that strength and wisdom with God through honest God, I'm just going to walk this out without any sense of trying to shade things, move things, manipulate things. I'm just going to walk this out with integrity. There is power in your life. There are people, I just got to encourage you, instead of praying for more power, you need to pray for more truth. You need to make up in your mind, I'm going to be a person who walks in the truth. For, for instance, if you're feeling shame, it's not about, God, I just need more power not to feel shame. It's about, God, I just need more truth. I need to realize that I'm so valuable to you that you said your son, that Jesus would die on a cross, that my life is so precious to him, that if he looks at me that way, then I better look at myself this way. And as I walk in the truth, you are then empowered to live out the reality of that. And so he makes this really, you look at the life of Jesus, it's just filled with integrity. The very fact that these religious and political leaders would say these words in verse 16 to Jesus testifies to his impeccable character. They come with both the purpose, it's a setup to butter him up, and they also come to force his hand. In a sense, they say, because you're so honest, Jesus, we know you won't be political with us. Catch that? Isn't that interesting? In a sense, they're thinking, we've got you trapped, Jesus, because you refuse to play political games. Look at verse 16. Teacher, rabbi, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. There's three things we know about you very clearly. That you're a person of integrity. You teach the way of God in line with what is true. 
Catch this third one. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. You know what the literal Greek means? You do not look at the face of the person standing before you. It's that idea that when you're standing around and, and, and you're getting this hard question, you kind of look around and you see the faces and you play to their answer. Jesus never did that. I mean, it's real easy to do, isn't it? It's one of the easiest ways to sway your, your, your opinion into a direction so because you're answering according to what they may want to hear. And they're basically saying, Jesus, as this Herodian face is standing here and this Pharisaical face is standing here, and there's probably zealot followers out here and others, we know that you're not going to look at these different ones and be swayed by the answer. So tell us. It's a force to get him to play his hand. And I just look at the incredible and remarkable integrity of Jesus. And I think about him and I go, I am so glad I'm following him. Just imagine, you couldn't, you couldn't follow somebody better than Jesus. Just imagine if someone like Jesus showed up as your, your boss at work, was your CEO of your company, was the kind of person who, who supervised things that were going on. Just imagine how good that would be. Because when love is combined with truth, it always leaves a mark. And God's power is released through truth. Your truthful and honest life releases the power of God. Jesus knew this. He was known by this. He was full of grace and truth. Your wisdom and strength alone will only release your wisdom and strength. So be calm. And then be honest. Just kind of walk this life with integrity and always be walking with this sense of, of honesty because in that honesty is incredible truth. When love is combined with truth, that non-anxious presence, that calm is combined with what is true, it always leaves a mark. It makes an impression. Your honesty and your integrity, your character may be the simple greatest impression you leave on the world around you. I remember when I was first, the first time as I was preparing for these messages and I read this, that line stood out to me. And I remember thinking, oh, God, would I, could I, if I could, if someday those around me would see this person of integrity, would know that the way I, I, I shared about life was in line with what is true and the way that I lived with such that I didn't play to people and to those faces and those influences, but I just lived out of the, out of the brilliance of the Spirit of God. Oh, if we had elders who did that. Oh, if we had a church that did that. Oh, if you as parents would do that. You know, dads, your sons and daughters need to see this in your life. And, and moms, when you just think about holding that little one or seeing that little one that you have or that one that's maybe grown now, if you could just show them that kind of life. Grandparents, you have the ability to, to reveal that. You know what, folks? It's not too late if you feel like you've been living without integrity. It's, it's, it's possible to choose to be calm and to be honest. Your integrity and character is the single longest lasting, lasting gift you will give as an employee, as an owner, as an executive, as a manager, as a teacher, as a student, as a salesman, as a lawyer. Well, maybe a lawyer's going a little too far, but um, just kidding. Historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, who I referred to last week when she was, she, she has studied past presidents and she was doing a study, especially from Eric Erickson, who talked about the need for the balance of, of work and love and family and, and rest and recreation. And she was comparing Lincoln and, and uh, LBJ and others and, and, 
she states with regard to Lincoln this very interesting thing after she studied his life. She said Lincoln possessed an uncanny ability to think about and empathize with other people's point of view. He repaired injured feelings that might have escalated into permanent hostility. He shared credit with ease. He assumed responsibility for the failure of his subordinates. He constantly acknowledged his errors and learned from his mistakes. He refused to be provoked by petty grievances. He never submitted to jealousy or brooded over perceived slights. He expressed his unshakable convictions in everyday life and pursued a greater vision amid profound personal suffering in the face of widespread animosity. You might think that integrity leaves your life without enemies. It doesn't. She says he was hated because he could not be swayed or deterred from his deep convictions for his people and his nation from his personal convictions. And he eventually paid his life for that. She says, yet beyond his wildest dreams, Lincoln had no idea how far his reputation would reach, what mark it would leave on others. She says, I was researching about this, and I was so thrilled one time in my research to find an interview with the great Russian writer Tolstoy. Leo Tolstoy, in a New York newspaper in the early 1900s, had this interview. And in it, Tolstoy told of a trip that he had recently made to the very remote area of the Caucasus, where they would, where there were really only just wild barbarians, he said, who had never left that part of Russia. And knowing that Tolstoy was in their midst, they asked him to tell stories of the great men of history. So Tolstoy, who's a great storyteller, told them about Napoleon and Alexander the Great and Frederick the Great and Julius Caesar, and they just loved it. And he was just about to finish, and before he finished, the chief of the barbarians stood up and said, but wait, you haven't told us about the greatest ruler of them all. We want to hear about the man who spoke with a voice of thunder, who laughed like the sunrise, who came from that place called America which is so far from here that if a young man should travel there, he would be an old man when he arrived. Don't you love the color of that? Tell us of that man. Tell us of that man they call Abraham Lincoln. And Tolstoy was stunned, and he gathered his thoughts and began to tell them everything he knew about Lincoln. And then in the interview later with the New York reporter, Tolstoy asked them as he was sharing this story, what do you think made Lincoln so great? He wasn't as great a general as Napoleon. And he wasn't a great statesman like Frederick the Great. And he looked at him and he said, but his greatest um, and his greatness consisted, and historians will roundly agree with this, he said, in the integrity of his character. The moral fiber of his being. And Goodwin concludes that through all this, he, Lincoln, as he looked, you know, you look at his um, bleak childhood, losing his mother at a young age, could have blamed his life on that. And he, he, he had to actually laboriously educate himself by himself. He persisted through a string of political failures and he remained steadfast to the darkest days of the war. And in that life filled with integrity, his life marked people as far as the Caucasus. In Russia. Integrity leaves a mark. 
When you're in those situations, what is so interesting about the life of Jesus is he was calm, not anxious as he sat and his heart was quiet. He knew he had the mind of the father and he knew that through this honest life of integrity, that if he went past blame and and, and he would just take responsibility for his life as he moved through this life and he would be honest about what was going on in some of those real difficult situations. He then moved to another place as he saw these people coming. Here is Jesus, not anxious, calm as they come toward him. This life filled with integrity, which they admit they use against him. What does he do? He just confidently walks into it knowing that God is going to answer. He will provide. Basically, God is with him. When you're in those kind of places and you're not trapped by fear and you're not in worry, and you're not trying to get your outcome and you come into this place where you just so calmly and with honesty let the Spirit of God just move through you. You know what? When you move into those places, even if Satan was to try and trap you, there are opportunities ahead of you and those opportunities come because you have the brilliance of the mind of Christ. If you look at verses 17 through 22, he says, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And I think Jesus just calmly letting the spirit of God work through him, observed what was going on. He says, Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites. He was just honest. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? And they now, this is a very good thing to do. If you find yourself trapped at times, the rabbinic thing they would do is they'd ask the question back. You know, he's not in the yes, no anymore. Whose inscription is this? Oh, it's Caesar, they replied. And then he says, and that's great. He says, give the Caesar what Caesar's and give to God what's God. And they were stunned. These backroom schemers were stunned with the brilliance of God through Jesus. His simple answer was this, fulfill your responsibility to both realms. Isn't that brilliant? In the midst of this political tension, he basically says, to the image on the coin, give your tax. To the image on your soul, give your life. Did you catch that? To the image on the coin, give your tax. To the image on your soul, give your life. Be calm and honest. Confidently trust that God will work. Fight the tendency toward fear, the motivation to shade the truth, to urge the scheme, to manipulate. But let God show up and work through you. Be confident in God, in the mind of Christ, and the Spirit of God in you. Jesus said this time and again to his disciples. This is the way I want you to live. This is how I want you to show the world that it's not about your brilliance. It's not about how you can, through your strength, get your ends met. But it's about how God shows up through you as you love people and as you relate to people and you stand in what is true and you move through it, God will move you to the place He wants you to be. And that doesn't mean it's always going to be that you're going to get through the trap. There was a point in the garden where Jesus was praying before His Father and He says, Father, if you would take this from me, He says the first time. And then the next few times He says, if you're not going to take it, then would you strengthen me as I walk through this? Calmly, with a great sense of integrity as honesty, confident that God was going to do something in his life that would change the course of the lives of others. Matthew 10, verses 19 through 20, because Jesus would say this again and again, guess what, your resource with the Holy Spirit. He would say, when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. Look at this word, you might want to underline it, at that time. So you're in a bad situation, you're arrested right now. And, and you're not to worry about what to say, because at that time you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. As Andrea Habeisen, who does a lot of our programming here, says often, God's timing isn't perfect, but rarely. 
Now, God's timing is perfect, but rarely early, right? God's timing is perfect, but for us, we always want it to happen now. So be confident God is with you. John sixteen thirteen. but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. This past, uh, not too long ago, I had a situation where I did feel kind of trapped. I didn't feel like it was fair and all these other things. And it was in, in my, in one of the things that's so great, folks, about having a regular, consistent time where you're quiet before the Lord is that gives you those opportunities to be calm so that when you move into those places, when everything else is hectic and moving so quickly, the calmness has a way of anchoring your soul. And I was sitting in there and I, and I don't know if it's because I've become so mature in my walk with the Lord or because I was studying this message. Obviously, has to be studying this message. Anyway, that was a joke. Um, I was studying this message, and I, these these thoughts were coming to my mind, and I just applied what God. That's what I love. Thanks for paying me to teach. I mean, I get opportunity to apply right in my own life. And so I'm sitting there, and I said, Kevin, be calm, and just think through this, and honestly, just put the whole thing together, write it out as I do in my journal, and then as I prayed. God began to show up. I heard this voice that said, you know what, it was, it was like kind of just impressed on me. What Satan means for harm, God means for good. And also my whole attitude around it began to change. I had this sense of hope and I started thinking, wow, this is really cool. I don't need to worry about it. I don't have to do anything. Just show up and allow God to work. And when God shows up and works, he does things that you don't imagine. And he works things through in the way that he wants to work them through. That's how he calls us to live. Now, let me just share with you in just a few moments. The content of his teaching here is incredibly important. The words that Jesus says here about giving to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's, that teaching we need a whole nother message on. It is rich and deep. It is the seminal thoughts behind all the epistles that talk about government. It is what takes what you see in the Old Testament and brings it together and crystallizes it in a short little statement that Jesus shared. Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And in one sense, there's the church and then there's the state, the government. And you need to understand the kingdom of God and the church isn't the same. The church is the expression of the people. It's the people of God in this kingdom of God. And the, the kingdom of the world is, is all the things that cause the world to move. And the state and the government is the way that the laws of the world get enacted and the way the people act in it. And they're two different things. And there's just a whole bunch of contrast that I'd love to share at some point, And we probably will do that. But the reason this was such a profound trap was because first century Jews were deeply divided on how to respond to political issues in their day. To remind you of our day? On one extreme, there were these what I call um, fundamentalist conservatives, which were called zealots, who believed that the Jews should take up arms against the Romans, initiate war, and they would trust that if they did that, God would intervene. Their battle cry was simply vanquish our enemies Take this land back for God and Israel. On either extreme, there was a more liberal minded who thought it best not to trouble the waters, but to cooperate with the Roman government and to do so as much as possible. Then in between, there were all kinds of those two extremes were all kinds of positions. And they were all distinguished by how they answered a variety of questions regarding how the Jew was to interact with the Roman government. Should the Jews obey Roman laws, and if so, which ones? Should they pay taxes to Caesar, thereby support this tyrannical regime? 
Should they be educated by Roman literature and teaching methods? Should they participate in the Roman nationalistic holidays and festivities? How much Roman culture should we reject or accept? And a whole bunch of other questions. Stick with me just a minute more. Into this intensely politicized situation, Jesus was born. And it's no surprise that throughout his ministry, people would try to get him to weigh in on these questions. Remember, they thought he was a political messiah. And they thought he had come to answer and solve their problems and to liberate them. They thought that he had come around the political aspect of things. And even his own disciples thought of that till the very time up to the cross. There's a man, Eric Metaxas, who was the keynote speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast um, here in February. He's also a man who wrote a book called Bonhoeffer on a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who had to wrestle through how to interact with the Nazi government in the time the Nazis were rising to power and what the church's response would be. And it's a very interesting thing because he actually gave his life because he was an activist. But it's interesting what Bonhoeffer writes when he talks about the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. Bonhoeffer says Jesus concerns himself hardly at all with the solution to worldly problems. When he is asked to do so, his answer is remarkably evasive. Indeed, Jesus scarcely ever replies to a man's questions directly, but answers rather from a quite different plane. His word is not an answer to human questions and problems. It is an answer of God to the question of God to man. And his word is essentially determined not from below these kingdom of the world issues, but from above, from heaven. And it's not about a solution down here, but it's about a redemption that God brings here. So basically, Jesus didn't come to usher in a new and improved version of the kingdom of the world. Jesus' agenda was so incredibly radical, he came to redeem the world by ultimately overthrowing the values of this earthly kingdom and by ushering the values of kingdom of heaven and he didn't come to just give political solutions or tweak external regulations or, or really enforce better behavior. He came to transform hearts from the inside out. His mission wasn't to improve the old, but his mission then and now, even to this day, is for us to embody an entirely new way of doing life. Jesus is brilliant. These guys come to him and he never took the bait. Jesus always moved the discussion to a much deeper level, the kingdom of God, the heart response. And as one New Testament scholar writes, and catch these words, to the grasp the ironic brilliance of Jesus' response, it's helpful to know that the Jews of this time were deeply offended by currency that bore the image of the emperor. Of the emperor. They saw it not only as an egotistical on the part of the emperor, but also as a direct violation of the commandment against making images in Exodus and Leviticus. In fact, in some regions, the Jewish outrage was so great that the government actually would not issue coins with images. The Jews believed only God can make an image of himself, and he did so when he made humans, you and me. And you can almost see Jesus looking at these guys with this wry smile. And he holds up this coin. And he goes, you believe this coin is an egotistical and idolatrous offense to God, which I agree. So who should we, who are God's people, fight with each other over how much of this money we should keep or give back to the egotistical, idol-making offenders? The thing that people should be concerned with, Jesus is saying, is whether or not they are giving to God what bears his image and what therefore belongs wholly to him, namely our very lives. 
That's the issue. It's not to do with some coin. Let's quit fighting about all these things. It's about the image of God and hearts that are transformed. And what are you going to do with that? How are you going to respond so that when people see your life, they see God living in you? That's what transforms this world. I'm going to ask the team as they come forward, I just want you to to recognize, and I believe this so firmly in my heart and being, that the only thing that can change the world around us, that can transform your situation, is the presence of God in you and with you every place you go. So in this world where we live so fast and so rushed, I want you just to take a moment here to hear these words and to listen to the Spirit of God. He may be speaking to you even in this quiet moment.